You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Go with me for a minute. You have this friend, and this friend tells you that they just found out that they've discovered this life-changing, world-altering, history-shaping truth, and it's all here in this book. Kanye for President 2020, right? So, <laughs> now listen, I don't think Yeezy will be president in 2020. Now, I'm not saying I couldn't be persuaded to vote for him because, I mean, just imagine the walk-up music. Maybe we change the national anthem to Jesus Walks or Gold Diggers. I don't know. They're just dreaming. Like, but uh, <laughs> they lay out, they say, in this book, this is going to change your life. Just read it. And in the book, it lays out why Kanye is the man for the job in 2020. And it, and it goes through his resume of why he's super qualified to do this and you probably didn't know this, but undergrad, he went to Yale, graduated first in his class, got his MBA from Harvard Business School, got his MDiv from Trump University, got his doctorate at Stanford, and you go, hang on, hang on, what, what was that one? Doctorate at Stanford, you know, before that, before that. Oh, the Harvard Business School? No, 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 in between those. Oh, the Trump University, yeah. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one that doesn't fit. Right? It would be very clear to you which, which thing doesn't fit on a potential president's resume. So Matthew writes this gospel. He's writing this book to convince people why Jesus is the man for the job. And he's writing to convince people, especially Jewish people, of this world-changing, history-shaping truth. And the people he's writing to, your genealogy, your family's history is as important or more important than the reputation of the schools that a potential presidential candidate would go to. And in fact, especially like if you are writing to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah, you cannot overstate how important it is that he comes from just the right line of people. Which is why when Matthew lists people like Manasseh and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, it is shocking, scandalous stuff. Stuff you go, that doesn't belong there. It's like it's like showing up to your brain surgeon's office and seeing the degrees on his wall are from Trump University and ITT Tech. And you go, listen, you're qualified to do a lot of things probably, Doc, but I don't want you operating on my brain because sometimes I use it. And I don't, so no, right? And listen, you know, I'm with you. When, when Scripture lists these genealogies, they're long and, and hard to read, and you kind of skip them or glance over them at best, but I really like this series we're doing. Or we're spending time looking at the genealogy of Jesus, it, taking this kind of creative angle to go, here is how and why and when Jesus came into the world. Because I, I get it, like, you read the genealogy, and it's like some guy with a name I can't pronounce begat some guy with a name I can't pronounce who had a son whose name I can't pronounce, right? And, and you kind of just glance over them, and you go, why is that interesting? Um, because the, the genealogy, the list we're given in Matthew 1, doesn't make sense. It's off. There's something wrong about it. There are things in there that don't belong. And I believe this. I believe Matthew and Luke knew precisely what they were doing when they included some unsavory characters in Jesus' family tree. So welcome to uh, week three of Awkward Family Photos. Um, Monty started off the series a couple weeks ago, and he, he had some fun with Photoshop, and he made fun of me and Todd. He did some little work. I was going to get him back today, but then I looked at the graphic for the whole series. That's on the screen like the whole time. It's on the posters everywhere, you know, and I was like, 
I don't know if I need to, right? I think, I think we're fair. I think we're square. But I did. I wanted to share with you some, this morning some of my favorite awkward family Christmas photos that I found. Um, this one, I call, I call it, uh, if you're happy and you know it. Um, just, this, this one is, uh, how many monkeys is too, mon- too many? One. One is too many monkeys. This one is, uh, you said we were taking in our pajamas. These are my pajamas. Uh, this one is, uh, well, this is Hawkward. Oh, so punny. All right, this one is, uh, Mom got a sewing kit for Christmas. Oh, great. Uh, this one I call, uh, Tell Us How You Really Feel. Oh, if you see that there. Good. Um, this one I call, um, Define Child Endangerment Officer. And then, uh, Cutest Couple Award goes to... Trump and the dog. Trump and the dog. It went there. Hey, how did that sneak in there? Okay, let's get back to... Um, so Matthew 1... Matthew 1 gives us this genealogy of Jesus, and I find this fascinating. That Matthew doesn't skip over the ugly branches. He, he doesn't try to hide. In fact, it's one of the reasons I find the, the Bible very reliable and trustworthy is that it, it doesn't pull punches. It doesn't venerate. It doesn't try to hide or um, wash over the mistakes in its history. I mean, two weeks ago, Monty talked about Manasseh, who's perhaps the most evil king in all of Israel's history. Last week, Todd talked about David and Bathsheba and this whole affair and the mess that followed. And today, I want to look at this little gem that that Matthew sneaks in 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 chapter 1, verse 5. And it's right here. He says, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And you go, okay, why is that fascinating? Uh, Well, for starters, in these two verses here, we have three women listed. We have... uh, we have Rahab, we have Ruth, and then we have uh, Uriah's wife, who's implied Bathsheba there. And, and in this day and age, in this culture, women have no business being listed in genealogies. They have little more cultural value than livestock, but the Bible is um, extensively progressive in its treatment toward and valuing of women for the culture of its day. So in these two verses, Matthew gives us three, count three women, and the women he gives us are incredible. Rahab is a prostitute. Ruth's not even a Jew, and uh, he doesn't even say Bathsheba's name, but Uriah's wife, who's implied there, is the side chick that David forced himself onto and created that whole mess. And you go, Matthew, what are you doing, man? You're supposed to be selling people on Jesus, and you're telling him about all the screw-ups, all the mistakes in his history. You're supposed to leave that stuff out, including um, the surprising addition of a woman named Ruth. And I love the story of Ruth. Maybe you're wondering why she's a big deal. She just sort of sounds like somebody's grandmother. But uh, the story of Ruth is a beautiful narrative found in the Old Testament. It's really quick to read. It's only four chapters long if you want to go through it and read it. But I want to give you the short version this morning. Uh, And there are three people you need to know about when we talk about the story of Ruth. There is Ruth, who is a Moabite woman. Uh, Naomi, who is her mother-in-law. And then Boaz, who's a wealthy man. This story takes place in the time of the Judges, which is this turbulent, violent time in Israel's history. Uh, Judges records it as uh, that everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. Sort of anarchy and chaos ruled. And war and famine is sweeping the land which drives Naomi and her family out of Israel and into this land called Moab, home to Israel's enemies. While she's there, uh, Naomi's son marries a Moabite girl named Ruth. Uh, Naomi's son, Ruth's husband, then promptly dies of dysentery or something, I don't know. It doesn't tell us, but I played Oregon Trail growing up and kind of assume everybody in ancient times died of dysentery. Um, 
So he dies, and, uh, and Naomi and Ruth are left um, without any men in their family. Naomi's husband will die. Uh, her other son will die. And, and so these two unlikely couple, these two unlikely people who aren't, shouldn't be together, a Moabite and a Jew, end up alone without anybody else in the family. And so Naomi does the, Naomi does the sensible thing. She goes, you know what? My husband died. Your husband died. My, my boys are both dead. I'm going back to Israel. This doesn't make any sense for me to stay here any longer. And she, she says she's going to pack up and head back home to Israel. And, and listen, if you're Ruth, you go, okay, this lady showed up. She moved into my town. I married her son. Then her husband died. My husband died. Her brother, my husband's brother died. She says she's going back to Israel. That makes sense. You go, okay, yeah, that's fine. You should probably go back. You know, besides, death seems to sort of be drawn to you. And so have a safe trip. But you probably won't. Um, Right, so Naomi says she's heading back to Israel, but, but Ruth says, you know what? I'm going with you. I, I'm going to go with you. That's like, a, that's like a family moving to your neighborhood from Afghanistan or something, and they move into your neighborhood, and you end up marrying one of the kids in that family, and then everybody in the family dies, including your spouse, except for your mother-in-law. And your mother-in-law goes, you know what? I'm moving back to Afghanistan. You should stay here with your people. I'm going back to my people but you go, no, I'm going to go with you. She says, no, that doesn't make any sense. You stay here with your people. I'm going to go back to Afghanistan with my people. And you go, no, I'm going with you. I'm totally going to be an Afghan now. Or Afghanian? Af- Afghani? Let's go with Afghan. That sounds right. I'm going to be an Afghan now. Right? And you go, I'm moving back with you to Afghanistan. One of the most beautiful sections of Scripture, Ruth tells her this. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be? Naomi. So Ruth, this Moabite widow, returns to Israel with her mother-in-law, and you'll notice the town that they return to, Bethlehem. It'll be a big deal down the road. But Ruth and Naomi are broke, um, with no means of providing for themselves. Essentially, they are refugees in the time of war and famine, and, and, and Ruth is a, she's a Moabite woman, meaning that she would have been um, subject to discrimination and racism and distrust by the people of that culture. Um, I'm sure there's no ties or parallels between the refugee crisis and our current society, but uh, that's what's happening with Ruth and Naomi. At this time, a pair of widows like them are essentially two dead women walking. Uh, Ruth has moved back to Israel with her mother-in-law to die, basically. In, uh, in Michigan, we have this bottle refund program. Uh, so it, when you buy a case of can, whatever, uh, pop bottles, uh, you pay a 10-cent deposit on it, and then when you turn the can back in, uh, you get a dime back for it, right? I, I think it's kind of brilliant. It works really well, f- especially in a couple of ways. One is that it encourages uh, recycling very strongly. You've paid a deposit on that bottle, you want to get it back, and so you recycle well. Uh, the other is this, is that... Um, It does a really good job of making sure cans and bottles and stuff, they don't end up becoming litter, right? Because 
homeless people, teenagers who need gas money, somebody will come along and pick up those bottles from the roadside or from the gathering or the sporting event and turn them in to get a little bit of cash back. Likewise, God has sort of a bottle refund program for the nation of Israel. Uh, He's ordained this way to make sure that people don't get tossed aside and left by the side of the road. Someone will come up, pick them up, and redeem them. The term used for this in the Levitical law is kinsman redeemer. He lays it out in Leviticus 25. He says, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and has to sell some of their property to survive, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they sold, come and buy back their land. So Ruth and Naomi are are destined to nothing. And so their only real hope is that a kinsman, a, a relative, will come through and redeem them, pick them up from the side of the road and take them in. And uh, as the story goes, someone does. This man named Boaz, this wealthy Israelite, um, comes in and redeems Ruth and Naomi. Uh, He becomes their kinsman redeemer. 4.14 says this, The women said to Naomi, Praise be to God, praise to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. Boaz and Ruth will marry and start a family. And uh, our book has this sweet little happily ever after ending. Question though is, all right, so here we are a week from Christmas. Why are we knee deep in a story way back in the Old Testament? What, why are we talking about this? And it's not just because she's one of the many names listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Could it be that Matthew is trying to tell us something about Jesus when he includes this Moabite widow in the line? What if What if the story of Ruth is not just one of the stories that leads to the story of Jesus, but what if Ruth is the story of Jesus? They didn't didn't know it at the time, but over a thousand years before the incarnation of Christ, God is telling us about who Jesus will be through Ruth Ruth and Boaz. Ruth, Ruth is all about Jesus, about how he will come and redeem his people, about the price he'll pay, especially for outsiders to be part of the family of God. In fact, the story takes place in Bethlehem. Ruth is the Christmas story. And so for the rest of our time this morning, what I want to do is go through the story of Ruth and look at the ways uh, that Jesus shows up, the typologies of Christ in the story of Ruth. Um, In in student ministries, we have this uh, axiom we call the three B's. And so here's what's natural. Here's what most organizations, most clubs, even most churches do, is they have these three Bs, and they go, uh, if you behave like us and you believe like us, then you can belong to us. You can belong with us. You can be part of us, right? And so this is how most people, most churches operate. If you behave like us, if you act like us, dress like us, look like us, you do the things like us, you don't do anything that upsets us, right? So like when I was in high school, I was in this band, not the trombone band, like a better band than that. Not really better, but you know, like an actual band. And so we were in a band and we needed a place to practice one day. And so a couple of the guys, they lived next to this church. The church was empty and their family went to that church. And so we just went in, we practiced in the church building that was empty. uh, And then we left, just like in a random room in in the building, right? The church found out that we had brought a drum kit into the Lord's house and banged it against the Lord's eardrums or whatever we were doing and was so upset they kicked their family out of the church. They were no longer welcome to come. And as far as I know, I'm still no longer welcome at North Casnovia Baptist Church for, because one time we brought a drum, drum kit in the building, right? So if you behave like us and if you ever mess up once, you're out. If you believe like us, if your theology is spot on like ours and if you believe anything weird or different than us, then no, you should probably not come here. Then and only then can you belong to us. And what we do as students, we tell them, this paradigm is upside down. This is not how Jesus treats me. 
It's not how Jesus operates in the New Testament. And so what we do is we flip it, and we, say, we tell students that you, you belong with us. Whether you look like us or act like us, whether you believe like us yet or not, you belong with us. You're part of the family. You're going to be welcomed like a brother or sister when you show up to student ministries. And our, our prayer is that because you belong with us, you will be loved into a relationship with Jesus, that, that you will find out why we love Jesus and love him as well. And that when you do, you give, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who will help you behave, help you live like Jesus. And that's the only way that happens is with, this, with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Ruth, Ruth is grafted into the family of God before she belongs. It, it, despite the fact that she doesn't belong, she is grafted into the family of God. And this is huge, guys. Listen, this is so important. Um, such a big deal that Matthew lists her in the genealogy of Jesus because she's not a Jew. She doesn't belong on that list. Which means this, it means that if you are not part of the family of God, you can become part of the family of God. Matthew is telling us that this is no longer just for the people of Israel, that through the coming of Jesus, you can become part of the family, kin, blood. You can become one of us. You can belong here. Spiritually speaking, it's a blood transfusion. The blood of the crucified Messiah and all of his perfection for yours. It changes your very DNA, people. That you are now blood-related, family, part of the people of God. In fact, um, in fact, Catholics have this doctrine called transubstantiation. I put it on the screen in case you're playing Scrabble later today, or you, know, you have a family relative you need to impress, tell you went to church. <laughs> and transubstantiation is this doctrine that essentially says this, that when uh, you are in Catholic Mass and you're having communion and the priest prays over, blesses the uh, cracker and the wine, uh, that it doesn't like figuratively represent Jesus's body and blood anymore. It literally is the flesh and the blood of Christ. I have a friend, he's a vegetarian. He says, I can never be Catholic. It's not a moral thing. It's a dietary thing. I, I couldn't eat flesh, right? And literally, they believe it becomes the flesh and the blood of Christ, which, I mean, when you read scripture, isn't crazy far off. It's not crazy far off. I think there is something that sort of mystical, something sort of magical is when we, when we participate in communion with God. But Jesus said it like this in John chapter 6. He said, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Now you and I know he's talking about communion here, but it's, it's sort of weird language. I'm with you. It's, it's strange. But what Jesus is saying is that if you are an outsider and you want to become part of the family of God, you need a blood transfusion. You need my blood. And the only way is you, you have to commune. You have to be part of this... Um, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Paul will say it like this in 1 Corinthians. So the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. I mean, we're going to take communion in a few minutes. This is what's going on here, is we're participating in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And check this, guys. This is so cool. So in the story of Ruth, when Ruth and Boaz meet, Ruth is offered something to eat by Boaz. And Boaz in the story is representing Jesus. Here's what, check out what he, he offers her. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine. A thousand years before Jesus shows up, Ruth is invited into the family of God through communion. He said, you can belong with us. And he thought we were just having a mid-service snack. Man, it's so much bigger than that. 
So Ruth shows us how the kingdom of God is being expanded, how um, outsiders are invited to commune with God. But this invitation isn't without cost. We need, we need it to be redeemed. See, see, Ruth and Naomi, they are destitute. They have nothing when Boaz shows up on the scene. Uh, in fact, um, to be redeemed means to be bought and paid for. Essentially, to be bought out of bondage, out of slavery. Ruth 2 says it like this, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Ruth is scraping the fields for whatever the farmers have missed so that she and Naomi don't starve. They have nothing to offer Boaz. In fact, Boaz, if he wants to redeem Ruth and Naomi, he's going to have to pay. He's going to have to buy back the land that they've like, foreclosed on. He's going to have to provide for Ruth and Naomi. So while it's a noble cause, it is going to cost Boaz something to redeem our two girls. Let's put it in 2016 terms. Let's say after service today, um, you meet somebody out in the lobby. They're a UK student, and you just kind of take a liking to them. They're here on a student visa with their mom, but they have like no other family in the world. And they're telling you about how they are going to have to go back and not going to be able to finish their degree. And you just, with compassion, you just kind of go, you know what? I want to help. And, and so here's what you do. Because you're just a saint and everybody likes you. Um, you decide you're going to adopt them. So they can stay and, and he can finish the degree and all that. That's great. It's such a noble thing. But, but you find out that in so doing, you have to assume their student loans. Which are like, you know, $53 bazillion at 39% interest to Sally Mae and whatever they are. You know, you, so you go, it's a noble cause. I appreciate what you want to do. But, but it is going to cost you. Which is, I mean, it's sort of like what Jesus does for us, right? That he goes, yeah, I'll, I'll come and redeem you. And the people that I will come to save will hate me, will torture me, will murder me. And even the ones that, who are like, get it. The ones who like, you know, you and I who are like, yeah, we love Jesus and we want everything he's going to offer us are going to like see what he did to save us and still keep on sinning as if we're sending him back to the cross over and over again. Because those are the people I'm going to have to go save. That's the cost for me. Awesome. Awesome. You and I bring nothing to the table for Jesus and yet he redeems us just the same. Why is that? Right? Why, is, why, why Boaz? Why is the question, did, did you do that? The Hebrew term used here uh, for what Boaz does is chesed. You can say it with me if you want. You get a little, little like a you know, furball or something going on. Chesed, right? It's kind of a CH sound at the beginning of it. And chesed means, it translates uh, compassionate, loving kindness. Uh, There's not really one English word that works for it. And what Boaz does here is he, he uh, exemplifies, he volunteers himself as kinsman redeemer because of his chesed, because of his compassion and love for Ruth. Boaz is showing us a picture of what Jesus will do for us. He's not obligated by law to show love and compassion, destitute as we are, indebted to our sins as we are, with nothing to offer him. It isn't the law that sends Jesus to the cross. It's, it's chesed. It, it's, this, it's this desperate love he has for you and I that he volunteers to be crucified to save you. So why does Matthew include this Moabite non-Jew, bankrupt woman in the genealogy of Jesus? Why does he go out of his way to make sure that you know the story of Ruth when we read the story of the birth of Jesus? Because he wants us to know who Jesus will be. That Jesus will be the bridge for outsiders to become insiders. That Jesus will pay the high cost to redeem his people. 
In fact, one of Jesus' followers, Peter, said it like this. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Why would God pay such a high price with his own blood to redeem people like you and me, sinful people like us? Because the thing God cares most about is people. Uh, about a week ago, I was um, trying to win husband of the year. I don't know if you ever do things above your pay grade like that, and um, it's a mistake. But So I decided I was going to take our three boys out, and we were going to do some Christmas shopping and, and buy Christmas gifts for mom, right? So I load the three boys up, and we go out to Hamburg, which is just crazy this time of year, right? Like just people everywhere, and pretty sure we're going to get hit by a car and stuff. And, but we grab all three boys, and we go over to the Marshalls because we're looking for some deals, right? So I get all three boys in, and I don't know how many times I said, don't touch that, or screamed, don't touch that. But it was at least a billion, right? And so they're like, you know, fighting and running around and trying to grab stuff, and I'm trying to find the right deals and all that sort of thing, and we're going around the store. And um, all right, so, so one of the things we're getting, uh, Max is going to get this for Sarah. I'm totally going to ruin Christmas for you, Sarah. But uh, Max is getting her, this is a big deal, Max is getting her salt and pepper shakers uh, because ours are like cracked and glued back together 10 times already. And so we're looking for salt and pepper shakers is one of the things on our list. And do you, do you know, people, what, what aisle to keep the salt and pepper shakers in at the Marshalls? It's the one where everything is glass, like the walls are glass, the floor is glass. And so we get into this aisle, and we're like looking for salt and pepper shakers, and here I am going, no, don't, don't touch this, don't touch it, don't, don't touch it, this one or this one, don't touch it, this one, just look, this one, don't touch, don't touch, okay, everybody out, everybody out, back it out, right? So that's, we get our salt and pepper shakers, we get into the cart, we go up to check out. And uh, we get in line, which is like, you know, it's a crazy long line, we're going to wait forever. But we get in the shopping cart, we're in line, and we get about halfway through the line, we work our way up, and I hear Hudson sneeze. He's got a little bit of a cold, nothing like major, but I hear him sneeze, and I kind of look over, and I see him go like this, right? And I'm like, Hudson, like we've talked about this, don't, you don't wipe your snot on your shirt, come on, man, right? So I'm looking to see just how bad it is, and I look, and I can see the, like the one arm, and um, from here to here is just wet with snot, like just the whole thing is snot, which is great. So I peek over a little further, I see the other arm, not messing with you people, from elbow to wrist is just soaked in snot, and I'm like, so this is the wrong decision probably, but I go, all right, it's a a big deal to get out of line, we're going to have to get back in line, the bathroom's all the way at the back of the store, it's just going to dry, right? Right? It's not that big a deal. And we're pretty much done. Let's just get out of here, get home, call it a day. And so that's where I'm going, which is definitely not dad of the year material. And, uh, and then Hudson turns with his sweet little face and says, what, dad? And I see that his face, I'm not, the whole thing is covered in slimy green globs. Uh, and, and so the, I'm the, the checkout, he's going to say something to the checkout lady because that's what Hudson does. He talks there and, and she's going to look at his face and she's going to call Child Protective Services. The kids are going to get taken away and like it's going to ruin Christmas. So we have, to, we have to deal with this now, which is awful. So I go, okay, fine. 
everybody out. And so we turned the car around, we're like banging stuff, you know, and then there's a line of people in the little turnstiles behind me. Get out, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. We go all the way to the back of the store. We spent like 10 minutes in a dirty marshal's bathroom trying to like wipe them down and hose them off and spray them. Finally get them cleaned up. We go back out of the bathroom. Uh, Max goes, I have to go pee. Of course you do. And so we go back into the bathroom. Everybody's back in, right? We go pee. We get back out. The line is now like around the store 12 times. It's just tripled in size, at least by, since we got in the first time. We get in line, we finally check out, and I'm, you know, I started out with such high hopes, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a 10, I'm like, we're going to do this, we're going to dad of the year, husband of the year, all that stuff, and then now I'm like a negative eight, and I'm like losing it, you know? So you know what, um, I'm going to need some ice cream, like this to, to help me settle this tonight. So we're, we're going to stop at the Meyer, just r- grab one thing, and because I'm going to eat the whole gallon when we get home. But I need ice cream when we get home. And so we stop at Meyer real quick. We walk in. We get the ice cream. The one thing, we get back out. We are almost to the car, people. I'm telling you. Like, we are within eyesight of getting home. And I hear behind me, Hachoo! You ever, like, see it where it just dangles? And it's, like, down to your... It's to his knees, people. Everybody back into the Meyer. Back into the Meyer. Here we go. So we go back to the Meyer. We go to the bathroom. Get them cleaned up. Everybody gets back out of the bathroom. I have to go pee and I'm not going to make it. So everybody back. We got not, we went in both bathrooms twice. And finally, finally we get home. Why did I tell you all this? Uh, um, because the thing God cares most about is people. Listen, I'm not a perfect husband or a perfect dad. Nobody will ever accuse me of that. Um, I just said this. It's going to be on video for like a hundred years and Hudson will see it someday, right? But, but here's the deal. Like if my kids need me, if my kids need something, if they need to be taken care of, I will do whatever it takes to make them well. Whatever it takes. And if I, like a broken guy, will do that, then how much more our Heavenly Father, when He sees us in need, when He, he knows what it will take to take care of us, will do whatever it costs. I mean, that's the story of Jesus. That He will do whatever it costs to take care of His kids. To redeem His kids. Listen, if you're here today and you have never been redeemed, um, then why not make that happen this morning? It does not matter how nasty a mess you are. The cost has already been paid. It takes God some 1,100 years, 30-plus pregnancies from the time of Ruth to set up the birth of Jesus. And you could add your name to that genealogy in a single moment this morning by simply choosing him as your Redeemer, as your Savior. Perhaps so, perhaps you have already done that, and, and if so, this next piece is for you. Um, so Naomi, uh, names mean a lot in this culture. Naomi, her name means sweet and pleasant. And this is a big deal. This defines who Naomi is. And when Naomi returns to Bethlehem, when she comes back to Israel, here's what the people say. They say, isn't that Naomi? Isn't that old sweet and pleasant coming back home? And Naomi says this to them, don't you dare call me that anymore. Don't you call me sweet and pleasant. My name is not Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, for my name is bitter. It means bitter, and I have been dealt bitterly with by God. I have seen pain and loss and heartache. Don't you dare call me sweet and pleasant anymore. She, she leaves town all sweet, pleasant, lovely, young, full of life, and she comes back home bitter, hard, hurting, worn down. Isn't that the story of us? Like, like, can't all of us relate to that at some point in our lives? You know as well as I do that, that Christmas is, can be really hard for people. It's a reminder of loss, of dysfunction, of 
having to spend time with relatives that drive you to violence and anger and saying words in your head you shouldn't. We have all gone out sweet and beautiful. We say, Christmas, oh, it's wonderful. And we've come back bitter. And Naomi comes back. She no longer is sweet and pleasant. She is bitter. She changes her name even. She goes from uh, hope to despair. She goes from sweet and pleasant to bitter because of this, because she only sees what has happened to her. She only is looking in the rearview mirror. She only knows what has happened in her past. And you and I know the rest of the story, that her Redeemer is just ahead, that God has this worked out. Don't forget that you are not alone here. You have not been left without a Redeemer. When you are tempted to look in the rearview mirror, know that God has plans just ahead for you, that your Redeemer is on his way. That is the story of Christmas. The Messiah, the Redeemer, is coming. Don't forget that we know it's just ahead for us as followers of Jesus, that our Redeemer is coming back. So why does Ruth end up in the Christmas story? Why does she end up being part of the family of Jesus? Because this woman who changed her name from hope to despair, from sweet and pleasant to bitter, at one point in her life followed God in such a way that, that Ruth, even though it wasn't her God or her people, she said, I want that more than I want my own family. Whatever Naomi has with God, I want that more than I want my home. And I will go wherever, do whatever it takes to be like that. Todd last week asked us, um, you know, who you have in your life that you can be a Nathan to, that you can help me. Today I want to ask you, who is it in your life that you can be a Naomi to? Ruth is drawn into the family of God by the way Naomi follows God. Who is it that you are drawing in, helping to see, showing chesed to, that, that will be drawn into the family of God because of the way you live? I mean, imagine if we sent hundreds of people out into all the neighborhoods of Lexington to, to live in such a way that people go, man, whatever they have, I want that. Where are y'all going today after church? Going back to your neighborhoods? Couldn't we be that? If you find yourself bitter, losing hope, know that your Redeemer is just ahead, showing chesed to an outsider so that you might belong. Your Redeemer is coming. Perhaps you are being called to be a Naomi to somebody, showing compassionate, loving kindness so that they might belong to God's people. I want to give you three last names as we close. Um, They're Obed, Jesse, and David. Ruth and Boaz, they get married, and their family uh, starts in this town of Bethlehem. They have a son. His name is Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse has many sons, the youngest of whom is a boy named David. And um, David's an incredible guy. In fact, Bethlehem comes to be known as David's town. And Luke, a thousand years later, when he's telling the story of Jesus, will say this, that for unto you is born this day in the city of uh, in the city of Ruth's great grandson in the city of David Savior who is Christ the Lord grace and peace to you church we stand as we sing